Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12? Um, I want to go to the word this morning. And Last week we, we started this series about our soul and what God wants to do in our souls and healing us. And, and as we're reading Hebrews 12, I actually would like to ask you to consider to put yourself in the shoes of the people that got the letter for the first time. This, this church who was being persecuted. And when I say persecuted, I don't mean like they were being called names. I mean that they were, like they had their brothers and sisters hauled off into prison. Some of them had been hauled off into prison. Some of them had been beaten. Some of them had lost loved ones to that. That's just from their government. And then from their family, this is to the Hebrews. So these are Jewish people who have come to Christ, who are now also going, but my family has rejected me. My dad won't talk to me anymore. My grandparents, I'm dead to them. So they have been rejected and marginalized, and it has been going on for a while. And they're asking the kind of questions you'd be asking, which is, how long, Lord? What is going on? And so Paul would write, I believe Paul. There are theologians who are smarter than me that don't believe it was Paul, whoever you believe it was. The writer of Hebrews is saying to these people, we start with Hebrews 11, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you're texting me, I forgot to turn my thing off. Um, You'd be surprised how many people text me while I'm preaching. Um, But that chapter 11, this hall of faith ends with, oh, and then there were those who were cut by the sword, and this one was sawn in half, and this one was crucified, and this one was beaten, and they were, and he's, this is, you're, you're not alone in your trial, in your suffering. Therefore, verse one, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, speaking specifically of these brothers and sisters who had gone before them, Let's throw off everything that hinders us, the sin that so easily entangles, that traps us and paralyzes us. And let's run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. We talked about this last week. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the NIV uh, version says lose heart. The uh, New King James says that you'll faint in your soul. That that's, the word soul is your psyche. It's the seat of your feeling so that you won't stop feeling, so that you won't die inside and lose the will to live. And he goes on in verse four, and in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Notice it doesn't say punishment. Those are not the same thing. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone who undergoes discipline, then uh, you are not legitimate and you're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, verse nine, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. We respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. You understand what he's saying there? Our heavenly, our earthly fathers, they tried their best, they did whatever, but God actually, who knows you, you can trust him. 
God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, his completeness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want to ask you to consider with me when he says to set aside the sin that so easily entangles us, what is he talking about? Because on the one hand, we could say that it's the sin that I have committed, right? That's certainly, it can't mean less than that, right? And when he talks about despising the shame and what we've talked about in the, in the weeks before, the, or last week, that our shame causes us and it traps us. But what if he is talking about something, not only our sin that we have committed, but the sins that have been committed against us? Because you know this as well as I do, especially if you've been the victim of abuse, that when a sin has been committed against you, that it in the same way brings the same kind of a toxic shame as if you had done it yourself. Now think through with me. He says to them, he's like, you're not alone. There's other people that have died and have been sinned against. Like, would you agree that if you, have, you, saw, you sawed somebody in half, is that the right verb for sawed? Sawn somebody in half? Sawed. That's a sin, right? They, they, they were sinned against for that, right? Now think about the language he's using here. When he goes into this, he, he's saying to them, uh, the, the, you yourself, he's talking about the stories in chapter 11, but he goes in chapter 12 and he says, you haven't resisted sin to bleeding yourself. It's like he's saying, you haven't actually resisted that sin yet to where you have been beaten. He's talking about, it seems like sins that have been committed against him. And this matters, by the way, in what we're about to say. He actually talks about Jesus himself enduring sin from sinners, right? He's, it seems like what he's saying here is that the sin that so easily entangles us isn't just the sin that we have committed, but the sins that have been committed against us could be easily what he's talking about when he says despising the shame. Jesus could have despised a whole lot about the cross. I despise having nails driven through my hand, not a fan. And I would suggest that Jesus wasn't either. Jesus probably wasn't a fan of being unjustly executed, right? But it doesn't say he despised the injustice, injustice. It says he despised the shame. And I believe that what we're saying here, what he's saying when he says that you won't faint in your soul is that we are finding a healing from the shame that sin has brought on us so that we could throw aside every weight in the, season, the sin that so easily entangles us, that paralyzes us whether it was a sin that you committed or a sin that was committed against you, that there is a healing for that that he wants to bring and give to you so that you can run with perseverance the race, so that you won't fall asleep in your soul and give up on living. Isn't that a healing that you would want, that you would want to know? The story we talked about last week, Jesus is the author the finisher of your faith is the New King James version of that, that he is writing a story about you that's beautiful and free. And by the same token, the enemy is writing a story about you that is, wants to kill, to steal, and to destroy. It's the story of toxic shame that wants to literally paralyze you in your soul and take you out of the race. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us wisdom in this? You have given us this soul of who we are. And you want to oh, bring freedom to it. Lord, I know in this room right now, in a room like this, that there are many others in here, not just me, who had experienced traumatic events that have caused us to grow weary and faint in our souls. And 
I pray today that your spirit, I can't do it, but your Holy Spirit can wake us up and heal us from that shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you remember right, I shared an op-ed piece last week from a uh, neurosurgeon, and he was talking about how as humans we have a soul, now, this is a neurosurgeon saying this, and this is not without controversy. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, or I don't know, if you're just a human, you're like, wait, that's controversial? That, that, that we have a soul? But it is uber, uber controversial. I, I was reminded of this article in The Guardian. Uh, this is actually from a couple years ago, but I, know, I just couldn't forget it. It was, why can't the world's greatest mind solve the mystery of consciousness? And that he takes us back to this time in 1994 when the humanist materialists who were in charge of our uh, scientific knowledge had basically come to the idea that our little 1.4 kilogram pile of flesh in our head was all that was responsible for our consciousness. And that was literally considered settled science. That any thought you have, any whatever. And so this dude stands up at this conference in Tucson and literally just pokes him right in the eye. And this guy, uh, David Chalmers, uh, basically stands up and says, hey, you know the idea that you, know, you guys are trying to figure out how when I touch a saucepan, why does it hurt? All that. He says, oh, that's the easy stuff. Those are the easy problems. The hard problem to the neuroscientific community is this, why on earth should all those complicated brain processes feel like anything from the inside? Why are we not just brilliant robots capable of retaining information, of responding to noises and smells and hot saucepans, but dark inside, lacking an inner life? And how does the brain manage it? How could the 1.4 kilogram lump of moist, pinkish, beige tissue, let that sink in. Glad you had breakfast. Inside your skull, give rise to something as mysterious as the experience of being that pinkish beige lump and the body to which it is attached. And he literally poked a dragon in the butt because the scientific community went, and it caused what is still to this day a controversy in this community saying that there are those who say that we are just that. And by the way, here's what's required if you're going to be a materialist that does not believe in the soul. Okay, we talked about last week, Dr. Engel. Kate's CAT scan did not show a soul, but something was there that was a soul. If you don't believe that, here's what's required to believe. This is the logical conclusion of it. He interviews in this article a guy named uh, Christoph Koch. Doesn't that sound like a smart guy? Christoph Koch, who was, um, I think it's that one. Yeah, yeah. He is the scientific officer at the Allen Institute for Brain Science and a key player in the Obama administration's multi-billion dollar initiative to map the human brain. Okay, they're not screwing around. They're trying to find the conscience on a, on a, on a map. And here's what this guy says. He says, I, uh, I think the earliest desire that drove me to study consciousness was that I wanted secretly to show myself that it couldn't be explained scientifically. I was raised Roman Catholic and I wanted to find a place where I could say, okay, here, God has intervened. God created souls and put them into people. But Koch assured me that he had long ago abandoned such improbable notions. Then, not much later, in all seriousness, he said on that basis of his research, he thought it wasn't impossible that his iPhone might have feelings. (laughs) With no sense of irony at all. 
But look, that's, if you, that's actually logical. If you don't believe in a soul, then maybe you just hurt your iPhone's feelings. I bring that up. To, I just want to share with you, that, hopefully, that the miraculousness of you being you. You being aware that you are you. That's when they talk about artificial intelligence and uh, Stephen B. Hawking and these guys that are scared of artificial intelligence. You know what they're scared of? 2001's a space odyssey. That he, you, the computer is suddenly going to become conscious. Not that the computer can mimic the brain, but the computer can know that it's the brain. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of that. Because we cannot create a consciousness. We cannot create a soul in a lab. That is the thing of God that he can put in you. And this is, this is real stuff in our world. This happened just a couple of years ago. Some of you uh, young guys might even remember this, that a young lady, 23 years old, was dying of cancer. And she raised money through Reddit and online. You can pretty much raise money for anything online, but she raised money that they might freeze her brain after she died. And just in the chance that maybe one day they could actually engineer it and bring her consciousness back from her brain, even if it's in a computer. And her man friend did that and his hope one day, I, and honestly, I'm not even sure, I don't mean to make light of it, I don't know if he's hoping someday that she shows up on the iPad or like, I don't, like they didn't really go into like what the plan was, but if you don't believe in a soul that God has created you and you are only manufactured using wires and things, that's the greatest hope you have. We were at the, the story conference, you know, Sarah, Sarah and Amber were there and there was a lady, she opened up one of the talks about what it means after you die and like the hope, I mean, honestly, she kind of summed up the whole thing is that she hopes that we can eat cake. Like that was, because other than that, we don't really know. And, and Amber said, I don't know how people do this without Jesus. And I would like to take that a step further and say, I don't know how they do it without Jesus and that Jesus isn't just something we make up, that this is literally scientifically, they're saying there is something in there that they can't measure, that is created, that is something, we don't know where it came from, we can't measure it, it doesn't show up on a CAT scan, it is your soul. And the Bible says here in verse uh, three that don't grow weary in your soul. And the word there is psyche, where we get our word psychiatric mind, and it's, it's the seat of feelings and it's the seat of emotions. And I believe that the story that Jesus wants to write for you today. Because when, when it happened to you, whether it was as a child or as an adult, whenever the story of shame began to enter you, it enters you at a place that can't be shown on a computer either. And the narrative of the toxic shame of an abuse, of, of that I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have been there. There's a story that I don't tell very much when I was a young guy across the street, a guy had moved in and him and his wife and children and, and he had, uh, would later be convicted of uh, molesting several children in the neighborhood. I was one of them. I was in third grade and you know what my story was in my mind? I didn't tell anybody. When you see this, why didn't they tell? Why didn't they? Because you can't even, nobody told me I couldn't. I just didn't because I was like, well, I shouldn't have gone in there. I knew better than that. Third grade. In the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, they walked away and they hid and they said, we couldn't go because we were naked. And what did God say? He didn't say, oh, you're darn right, you're naked. He said, who told you you were naked? I didn't. 
You didn't. They didn't just suddenly become aware. Somebody told them that story, that they are now separated and they're damaged goods, so why would you tell anybody? And I say that today, I know in this room that's a heavy thing to say, but your story is there somewhere that you, whether it's in the back of your mind or in your soul, however you want to word it, where the enemy lodged a story in you that continues with you to this day. And that toxic shame, I've heard Chip Dodd say, it's the addiction behind the addiction. For those that have struggled with a form of addiction in their life, that the toxic shame that I'm not worth it, the toxic shame that is encoded, that story in their soul, is what brings them to the actual addiction, but behind it somewhere. It's one of the things that Chip says a lot. I mean, he'll say, like, I care what they do, but I really don't care what they're doing. What I really care is why they're doing it. And why they're doing it is somewhere that was encoded to them, the story that is not the author and the finisher of your faith. It was the story that the enemy lodged in you. Do you remember what I said last week? Jesus always taught in stories, always. He says, we, we learn from stories. We learn from, we're humans. We learn from stories. Wouldn't it make perfect sense that the enemy would do the exact same thing to attack you with a story, a narrative? So when you say, I believe a lie about myself, what you're really saying is that I have believed this truth and this story about myself that isn't true. We don't have nearly enough time on a Sunday morning to dig into this kind of work. But I want you to know that the work that many, and even in this room, we've got people who are therapists and who are counselors, and you're doing amazing work. And if you're doing it in your own life without Jesus, it will be incomplete. That's what I see here in Hebrews is this idea of what he wants to do, which is despise the shame. What he has done here is to allow us to then run this race with perseverance. And before they had language for toxic shame, Paul, I would, I would venture to say they didn't even know there was a human brain. But it doesn't make any less true what they're saying here. It does, none of what he's saying here will contradict what any licensed therapist would tell you. It just adds Jesus into it because without it, it'll be complete. Because the first thing that he's showing us here is that we're fixing our eyes on the author. So when I'm pushing through to run this race with perseverance, when I'm putting aside this story, this weight and this toxic shame, I've got to focus on the author. I got to know that the author that's writing my story is good that he's kind, that he's competent. I, I'm not a big fan of flying. I don't know, anybody else with me on that? I get real spiritual. I start witnessing to people. I got the Bible out just in case. You know, I'm like, I've actually gotten better in my old age at that, but that's how I used to fly, I swear. But when you're flying over turbulence, when you're flying over rough, whatever, I will fix my eyes on the flight attendant because if the flight attendant is still boring drinks, we're good. If the flight attendant is suddenly switching from Diet Coke and getting everybody vodka, <laughs> panic. <laughs> I remember a flight when we were in Uganda years ago. We were flying. It was with, over there with Compassion International, and we were flying up into the northern, and, and we get on this bush plane, and I had just seen an episode of like some National Geographic discovery about how many bush planes crash a year. I'm like, well, this is it. I get to be on the news. I mean, that's my story. Yeah, I'm telling that story. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling that story. And so in that story, uh, Captain Nelson, who swear that was his name, he's literally flying with the door open, by the way. Uh, not the door, but you know, his door, so he could, we could see him. This is, I'm sorry. And we're literally flying over, like, it was scary, like, you have turboprops and whatever. And, and all I'm doing, I'm, I'm telling myself, I, first I ask him, do you have, is it, will this plane have beverage service? And, 
And he says, yeah, there's a cooler under, I swear that I'm not making this up. There's a cooler under the back seat. There were like 12 seats in this plane. And it was full of Oreos and Pringles and Cokes. And I'd been in Africa for like two weeks. I'm like, yes. And then I'm realizing, oh, this could be the last meal. That's why it's so good. You want, you know? <laughs> so we're, we're flying up. But I'm literally, I'm keeping my eyes on Captain Nelson. Fixing my eyes on him. Is he competent? Seems like he is. Doing a good job of flying. Is he good? He just gave me Oreos. He's great. <laughs> Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Is he good? Absolutely. He endured the shame of the cross for you. He's good. Is he competent? He created your soul. How about we start with that? He can sneeze stars. Like let's he got he's smart. He's competent. Is he smart? Is he competent? Is he good? And the answer to all those questions is yes. And now fix your eyes on him. What's he doing? Is he panicking? No, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, this tells us. Seated. You know, my dad, he would work all day when he was working and he'd come home. What would he do? He would sit because the work was done. Sometimes with pants, most times with not. I don't know about your dad. <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> He couldn't get his boots off fast enough. Jesus got done with, when you sit down, what it means is that the work is done. I look to the author of my faith and say, he is sitting, he is not panicked, he is good. And the story that he is writing, this good author who is kind and who has my best interests in mind is writing a story of redemption for you. You see, and I wanna read this because I, I screwed it up in first service because I said it wrong because I wasn't reading it. Right, it's one of those, it's like a tongue twister when I'm saying it out loud, but I want you to, I want to get it right. Because if you right now are going through, somebody has sinned against you, somebody, there's a, there's a, a trial, a tribulation, a something you're suffering, you will eventually, if you're honest, you've got to come to a conclusion. One of them is, is it, did I do something to deserve this? Is it, did I do, why, why is it now five years and it's still happening? Why is it, did I do something to deserve this? And it crushes your soul, or these are both non-Jesus responses. The other response is, I do deserve this. And it causes you to become bitter and cynical and not feeling. And it sounds exactly like what he says. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. I don't deserve this. It's bitter. It's cynical. I'm making light of this, what he's, what's happening in my life, which parenthetically, theologically, he says, endure hardship as discipline. He doesn't say hardship is discipline. He's not saying that God is giving you this thing. He's saying, this is, we just live in a fallen world. And so in a fallen world, this is gonna happen. But don't let, don't wait. I won't waste it. The father won't waste it. So he's saying, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. That's me. I don't deserve this. I'm bitter. I'm cynical. I'm not gonna do anything. I'm not gonna feel anymore. I'm gonna grow old and bitter and cynical and alone. And he says, do not lose heart when he rebukes you, I do deserve this and my soul is crushed. Those are two non-Jesus responses. There is a third response that is the truth and that is that I do deserve this but Jesus took it for me. That whatever it is, it is not punishment because Jesus endured that for me and he is good. And the story that he is telling is that I may not know this side of heaven, why? And I want you to know that that ticks me off but faith is the substance of things hoped for. I'm holding on to that of I will know one day why. I know why not. Jesus is good. I know it's not because he's not good.
So when I know that the story that he is saying and telling me, that then the third thing I can do then, it says run with perseverance the race that is set before you. If you are tired in your soul, you can't run the race that is set before you. And if I'm focusing on not the story that the enemy wants to write, not the one that he is writing, and even trying to figure out what I'm even believing and knowing that every time I'm making a decision that somehow that story could slip in, fixing my eyes on the author allows me to then say, okay, but what is that story? And he says, consider. That's not just, okay, he's, consider is this word that actually means it's an ongoing, thoughtful, prayerful negotiation in your mind of considering him. It's not a technique, it's a promise that as I am considering this, that ultimately I can then run into the race that he has set before me. And that persevere, that, that, that resistance. So my daughter, you know, I was a blubbering mess last week. I would like to apologize to everyone and thank you for uh, tolerating that. But you know what they did to my daughter like by Monday night? They're screaming at her. Nobody's screaming. I'm the only one who gets to scream at my kid. Why are you screaming at my kid? We're not screamers, by the way. We got a lot of other problems, but we're not screamers. <laughs> I can give you a list. I just ain't on it. <laughs> They're doing it to move her towards something. And it doesn't, if you're standing in the middle of it, I assure you, Ashley, by, because she didn't even go to bed Monday night. It's like all day, all night Monday, all day into Tuesday, into Tuesday night, and everybody's screaming. They, you can find videos online, and I do not suggest that you do this if you're a father. Because you just sit there and like, oh, don't yell at my daughter. Why are you yelling at my baby? Like, Why? They are pushing her towards something that will be the soldier that the Navy needs to protect and to guard our country. Endure hardship as discipline from the Lord. You are being pushed. If you're in a, an athletic situation, uh, you guys that are uh, marathon runners, Chris, you got to push yourself beyond what you think you can do and on the time you're doing it, you feel weaker. You're being pushed back against, but what's happening is you're not becoming weaker, you're becoming stronger. And I say that, and the last thing I want to hear, if you don't hear anything else I say today, because this all sounds really good on paper, but I'm going home, Darren, and I still can't figure out why this happened, and I don't understand. Can you at least grant me this? Jesus, on a cross, take yourself. Let's see if we could get a time machine right now, okay? Any Time machine believers, conspiracy people. It's a time machine. We're going back to the foot of the cross, standing next to the disciples and to the Mary and the family that was there, and they're looking at Jesus who is dead. What would you say to them with the advantage of 2,000 years of history? I mean, you might say, well, look, I got this book. You, don't, you actually you don't have one yet. It's a Bible. And in this Bible, it's, I'm, this, his, this is actually not the end of his redemptive work because if you're sitting there, you're saying, this is, this is it. What could possibly good could come from this? Like this, he's dead. His redemptive work is over. He could have cured diseases. He could have wiped out all diseases. He was literally going to set up his kingdom and it's over. His redemptive work is done. And you could say with the Bible, no, 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 no. This didn't finish his redemptive work. It is his redemptive work. But back then, you wouldn't have known that. And I would say to you today, do you dare take the same advice for your own situation? You don't have a book in front of you right now, but do you dare take your own advice that you would give to the disciples and say, I don't, I'm, I'm looking too narrowly. I need to take a bigger lens out and say, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen, that I can, I don't get this and I, God's healing my shame and I'm gonna run this race with perseverance and I can do it because I'm 
taking the long look at history. And you've heard me say it before, that we will one day look and say, righteous and true are your judgments, O God. That is not because we have to. It is not because we are robots who were programmed to. He gave us a soul with decision-making ability so that we will one day do that because it will be true. That we'll say, if you're a teenager, righteous and true are your judgments is King James for, bro, that blew my mind. That was amazing. That whole, I don't know how you figured that out, God, but that was amazing. That's what we'll do around his throne. I didn't understand it, but it blows my mind. Stand to your feet. We got to go. I know the parking lot. I get it. I want you to hear me say this, though, that Jesus wants to heal that shame out of you. And we're going to talk about next week the biblical of how he does it. But for today, I want you to walk out knowing that your author is good. He's competent. He's not panicked. He's seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished. You don't have to panic. You can hold on to that for today. And Jesus, would you give us wisdom as we step into this journey of healing, the soul that you have given us, this gift of who we are. I pray that today that that you would actually restore the wonder of that in our hearts. We take it for granted, but would you restore the wonder in that? And for those in here today that maybe you're right in the middle, Lord, they're in the middle of a suffering moment, would you encourage them and allow their soul to wake up? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.